Hello, my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. This week for us, as I suppose for quite a few other people, it's going to be Brexit week. I, uh, on this weird Tuesday, being not Wednesday, read the Tory manifesto for 2015 this morning. We're going to talk with Helen, Chris Brooke and Chris Bickerton, who are both here together in the same room, we think, for the first time. My memory of the Conservative Party manifesto is different from Helen's, <laughs> because I remember it as being all about bypassing, <laughs> all very carefully rooted through marginal seats. We're going to talk about where we are with Brexit and also what we think Nicola Sturgeon's commitment to a second indie referendum means. Yes. Uh, I was born in Glasgow. It's right. Really, uh, okay, let's hear it. Genuine Glasgow. Uh, Nicola Sturgeon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. What do you mean? <laughs> and in a little bit, we will be talking to Patience Wheatcroft, Conservative peer in the House of Lords, who has been one of the leading, in Tory party terms, rebels over the past few months. She is a passionate Remainer, and we're going to hear about what it's like to be a passionate Remainer inside the Conservative Party. First, we've had a few months in which Gina Miller won her court case, uh, so the government had to take this to the Commons. The Lords then rebelled. We had a couple of amendments passed, which were then rejected again by the House of Commons. The Lords eventually agreed that they had no more sticks that they could hit the government with, and we are where we are, which is at some point this month, Article 50 is going to be triggered. So what were the last few months for? How is any of this different from where we were before Christmas? I think that the difference is that um, Theresa May's hand has been significantly strengthened in terms of domestic politics anyway by what's happened. First of all, she has now made the House of Commons and to some extent the House of Lords own Brexit too. This is going to be done in the name of the House of Commons as well as in the name of the majority of the electorate. So Gina Miller did her a favour? I think Gina Miller did a big favour, yes. And on the issue of the devolution and the devolved parts of the United Kingdom, I think it's probably useful again from Theresa May's point of view that actually the court has already ruled on the fact that neither Scotland nor Northern Ireland can have a veto on Brexit in constitutional terms. So although Theresa May's got a significant problem in dealing with the independence referendum, it is not something that the court can now interject itself into and start to claim or start to make any decision that would say that there are complications that impede the authority of the Westminster government to pursue Brexit or to pursue the Brexit negotiations. So has, has Theresa May lost anything? I mean, there, there is a thought that the issue of EU nationals in the UK, though, the government won. Certain sort of moral promises have been made by David Davis, among others, that people who are feeling anxious about this shouldn't. But on the other hand, the government is still insisting that this is part of the negotiation. Has the government been weakened at all? On that particular question, I think um, the government has tried to make its position reasonably clear. Certainly the official position of the Home Office, if you go onto the Home Office website, is that the status of the EU nationals is as it was before the referendum. The government has then, I think, been rebuffed by other European Union governments who say we refuse to make any sort of commitment whatsoever until Article 50 is triggered. And so it's not entirely clear to me who exactly is trading with the status of EU nationals. It's as much the other EU member states as it is the British government. I think... The situation for Theresa May on the one hand has changed, on the other hand it hasn't. It is true that now she's in a situation where Parliament has backed her, which is very important, and the the role of the Gina Miller case is important in clarifying questions of parliamentary sovereignty, popular sovereignty, and the extent of executive discretion. There's no doubt about that. And her hand has been strengthened, I think. On the other hand, however, Article 50 is what it is. And I think there, Theresa May is in a situation where she is trapped. Article 50 is simply a trap. It was never designed as a workable solution for a leaving member state. I think she should have held off triggering it for much, much longer. Now that she's committed to triggering it at the end of this month, she's tied herself to two years of negotiations that I simply don't think are are feasible. Now, that's the bigger question, I think, that's lurking behind all of this, is whether you can actually leave the EU under the terms of Article 50. I don't think you can, not not with an agreement anyway. So she's in a slightly better position, yes, but this looming you know, problem of, of Article 50 is still there. And that case was not really being made in these debates in, in the Commons or in the Lords, in that it was the more familiar arguments about Europe that was driving the issue. And we'll hear from, in a minute from Patience Wheatcroft. She makes the case that is often made by people on the Remain side that Parliament, the Commons, 
is a predominantly Remain body if you look at the personal opinions of its members. And yet here we have the Conservative Party with only a very few exceptions against patients. Wheatcroft talks about Kenneth Clark. There were a couple more last night who have gone against the party line. What is the thing that is disciplining the Conservative Party here? What is the thing that... Is it just their small majority in the Commons, their anxiety about when you only have a majority of a dozen MPs of being seen to weaken the government more broadly? Or is it actually a myth that there are so many MPs who, in their heart of hearts, want Britain to remain in the EU? I think a lot of this goes back to what happened last summer in the leadership contest after David Cameron resigned, that Theresa May led strongly with her Brexit means Brexit slogan, and enough Conservative MPs made the judgment after lots of conversations behind closed doors that they were going to fall in line behind her, at least for the present. And I still have this sense that a lot of people are keeping their powder dry. A lot of people voted for the authorisation to trigger Article 50, who no doubt think it's not a good idea to trigger Article 50. But but these are people who don't want to pick a political fight unless it's one they might win. Now, there's no prospect at the moment that they will win that fight, so they're keeping their head down. But if public opinion changes, and one of the remarkable things since the referendum is that public opinion has not changed, it's a question that's been polled repeatedly, and you always get a country that's split down the middle uh, with 40-something percent on each side of the question and very little movement from one side or the other. But if public opinion were to shift in the direction of deciding that leaving the EU was a bad idea, you will see politicians beginning to move in response to it. It would be bizarre to think that the Conservative government with a small majority will try to force through Brexit if it's obvious from repeated polling that the country is coming around to the idea that it's a bad idea. But while public opinion doesn't move, the Conservative Party will stay where it is. I think quite a bit of it is unhappy with the way things are going, but they can be kept on board. I think the issue is complicated by the fact that the Conservative Party has spent a long time, and particularly the period since the Maastricht Treaty, engaged in you know, low-level warfare internally about the European Union. But that if you look at the differences of opinions within the Parliamentary Conservative Party since at least the mid-2000s, and certainly I think since 2010, it's been a predominantly Eurosceptic party. Now, quite a number of those Eurosceptics turned out for Remain during the referendum, and some of those may well have done for patronage reasons. Some of them may well have done out of pragmatic um, consideration. But And you'd include Theresa May in that? I certainly would. And certainly someone like William Hague, who's, you know, switched the way in which he talks about this issue, you know, very fluently, shall we say, um, since the referendum um, happened. But the difference between a pragmatic lever in the Conservative Parliamentary Party and a pragmatic remainer in the Conservative Party is pretty small. We're really talking about how best to find an essentially free trade relationship with Britain for the European Union. Now, some of those want to think that that can only be achieved inside the single European market, and some of them think that some kind of bespoke arrangement can be made. But it's not an existential question which side they come down on this. For the Labour Party, there was many more existential questions at stake. I just don't think within the Conservative Party, except for people like Ken Clark, who interestingly didn't even vote against last night, is that there is a genuine commitment to the European Union now in play. There may be pragmatic reasons for accepting it if in circumstances like Chris suggests, though I also think it would be somewhat problematic to try to unravel what has now happened given that there's been a referendum even if public opinion changed. But the Conservative Party is fundamentally a Eurosceptic party and it has been since at least the mid-2000s. That's probably a good point just to break off this conversation and go back to a conversation I had at the end of last week with Patience Wheatcroft. We don't normally on this podcast spend a lot of time talking about what the view is from inside the House of Lords. But last week, for a brief period, that was the heart of British politics. And Patience Wheatcroft is interesting as a Tory peer, made a peer in 2010 by David Cameron. As she says, she thought of herself as broadly... Eurosceptic, but as Helen has just said in, in Tory terms, these, these boundaries are getting quite blurry. And now she finds herself both a rebel in her own party and the object of really unpleasant online abuse as one of the leading 
Remainers who doesn't simply think that the Brexit vote was a bad idea, but would quite like to overturn it. So we talk about that. But first of all, I asked her a question which I've asked a few people on this podcast, uh, which was how was Brexit night for her, given her own views. And she said she held a party for her friends and was surprised to discover that more of them were Brexiteers than she'd realised. Uh, but that during the night, when the penny dropped what had happened, it really felt bad. It was almost like a bereavement. I think many of us were surprised by the intensity of our feelings because I'd never seen myself as a fervent pro-European. In fact, I'd been fairly Eurosceptic. And I feel quite guilty about that, really, because there was a very positive case to be made, which really nobody made during the campaign. David Cameron went into the British Museum on one occasion and mentioned the peace dividend. He did not mention the Third World War. That was total spin from number 10. But he did talk about peace. And that was just about the only time. With hindsight, do you feel it was a referendum that should have been won and was lost by political incompetence? Because people clearly differ on this still now. There are some people who say effectively... Brexit was always going to win and there are other people who say it's almost still a miracle that Brexit won and the mistakes can be clearly identified. I think it could have been 52-48 if the Remain campaign had been better. It could have been a much higher Remain vote if we'd allowed 16 and 17 year olds to vote and I think that was a a major mistake made for short-term political reasons. For the fear that in a general election they would all vote Labour. Exactly. If only they'd known that Labour vote couldn't be rescued (laughs) even by that, they could have taken that gamble. Well, quite. And, of course, we should have allowed EU citizens a vote if they'd been here for a certain amount of time. And even more importantly, we should have allowed those UK citizens resident abroad to have a vote. So there were things that could have been done to even it up. So it was kind of a rules of the game mistake in a sense. Yes. And and it it was, there was a little bit of complacency, do you feel? Yes, there was. And I think Parliament went along with the idea of a referendum without doing sensible things like imposing a threshold, just to go on a simple majority. But we, I guess, thought, as the party did, that this was going to be a win. Do you think both the party and, in a sense, the establishment were misled by the Scottish referendum because clearly there was a feeling that a historic pattern had repeated itself in the case of Scotland, which is it gets very tight, but then when people actually enter the voting booth, the status quo just reasserts itself. And and people did seem to think that that pattern would hold in this case and the opposite happened. Yes, they did. And they also thought, mistaken as it turned out, that the fear factor was the only weapon to use. It was used so vigorously that it backfired. And in the end, they just didn't buy it. This maybe again is with hindsight, but my feeling about it was that the big difference in the Scottish case is to, to run the fear campaign. It was plausible to say that the day after you voted, things will change. So first of all, the currency question mm-hmm. will suddenly be really acute and the border question will suddenly be really acute. If Scotland votes to leave the UK, the next day things will be different. Whereas with the Brexit case, I think people suspected, though they were told all of this doom and gloom stuff, that nothing much would change and that any changes that were going to come would come gradually and over time. And so it sounded oversold. It was trying to be like a Scottish case. And yet I think people thought that actually there would be a long period where nothing much changed. I think that's true of some people, but undoubtedly there were some people who were adamant outers who hoped it would change yesterday and were certainly clear that they want to change tomorrow because they want out and they want it vehemently. And they still do. Oh, they still do. So we're now, how far on are we? June the 23rd? We can do the maths. It's kind of eight months, nine months, nine months. You've been very actively involved in trying to persuade people that Brexit does not necessarily mean Brexit. Are you happy with that description or not? I'm happy with a description that says a Brexit vote in the referendum doesn't necessarily have to mean Brexit in two years' time. And anyhow, what does Brexit mean? Okay, that's pretty clear. How has your view changed since, say, the day after this very dramatic event that felt a bit like a bereavement happened? and, And then immediately the question follows, what does it actually mean? 
and there was a lot of uncertainty. There is still a lot of uncertainty, but there's also a real sense of momentum suggesting that this is going to happen. Do you feel it's different than it was nine months ago? It's harder to stop? I think it's harder to stop the first stage. And my initial feeling was that we should try and delay the triggering of Article 50 until the landscape in Europe was clearer. After all, until we've had the elections in France, Germany, the Netherlands, we don't even know who we're negotiating with. And it became increasingly clear that that was not a good move and that Article 50 had to be triggered because the people who want it definitely want it and there would have been trouble. But I think it's fair to say that if Article 50 is going to be triggered, there have to be some constraints put round it. And I still maintain that. It's been a momentous week in Parliament and the Lords did pass two amendments to the bill. I support those. I supported another amendment which said there should be a referendum on the terms of the deal. I don't like referenda, but if you've had one to start a process, it seems to me actually the only way you can put an end to that process is with a referendum. We failed to get that amendment through. I think because the subject's been raised and aired, it probably hasn't gone for good. Two years down the line, things could look very different. And you only need two and a little bit percentage of people to change their mind for the potential for something different to be there. So I know I sound like a bit of a dinosaur refusing to accept that things have changed. I accept that things have changed, but I think they may change again. So so say on that scenario, two plus years down the line, the people are given another chance to think about this. And of course, it is possible that people will think about its implications in a different way and some of the reality will have bitten. But as you say, there's also a lot going on in Europe. There are elections in France, there are elections in Germany, in the Netherlands next week. Presumably there's also the possibility, the real possibility, that Brexit sentiment will harden if European politics looks more dysfunctional or there could be another crisis of the euro or whatever. I mean, it's not it's not a done deal that opinion is going to, you know, buyer's remorse is going to kick in over two years. No, it's not a done deal at all. An optimist like me would say that what's going to happen, potentially, is that the EU will wake up to the need for reform. We weren't the only country that believed it had to change. You know, it is a a flawed organisation. It's endthrift. It makes budgetary demands on its member states that keep increasing when they're all having to go through their own periods of austerity. I think the capacity for reform in the EU is getting greater. So yes, it may look like a very, very dysfunctional organisation in two years' time, or it might look rather better. The resistance, if I can put it like that, is, as you've just described, coming from the House of Lords, but everything depends on what the Commons does. And there is this awkwardness that you must feel, I think anyone must feel, of the unelected chamber making the case for, and it's often phrased like this, for more democracy, another vote, another what What is the mood in the Lords around this at the moment? I mean, how much, for want of a better word, how much embarrassment is there that it is an unelected chamber making this case? I don't feel uncomfortable about it at all. I think that if the Lords has a role, and I believe it does, it is to look at legislation and say if it thinks the government is making a mistake. And I've been quite disappointed that there has been a reluctance, particularly from the Tory benches, where I know other people were staunch Remainers, to voice anything other than complete support for the line that the Conservative Party and the Commons is taking. And you've expressed that disappointment? Up to a point, yes, I have. I mean, the most vigorous way one can express it is by going through the lobby against the whip. And I'm not entirely comfortable doing that. I haven't done it very often in my parliamentary career, but I did it three times last week. What I wouldn't do is vote against the bill. I'd always said that I would not block the bill. I'd do my best to amend it. And so when we got to third reading and the Lib Dems voted against, I abstained. A positive abstention. And how much harder is the the job of the Lords in this context to amend and to hold the government to account in the absence of 
I suspect we can both agree on this, the absence of effective opposition in the Commons, in that it, it's always struck me that the British constitution depends quite a lot on there being an opposition government in waiting to bite. And in the absence of that... It's disastrous. Okay, that's a blunt answer, yeah. It is really disastrous not to have a proper opposition in the Commons. In the Lords, they were quite effective. They being the Labour Party. They being the Labour Party. They are the biggest party, apart from the Conservatives. The Lib Dems, not a, a bad third. More cross, Actually, the, the crossbenchers outweigh the Lib Dems. But I think they have made some good arguments. They haven't been consistent, but that's because of Mr Corbyn, I'm afraid. And at some stages, they have felt obliged to follow the line that he has done. So they wouldn't support the amendment calling for a referendum on the terms. I think they were wrong. But they are very much behind the amendment calling for a meaningful vote in Parliament. And thank goodness for that. So it does mean in the absence of an effective opposition on the other side of the House of Commons that the key opposition is internal to the Conservative Party in the Commons, probably, insofar as if the government's going to be held to account. Because the thing that was said post the vote, as you know, post the referendum was, well, the Commons is a majority Remain Assembly. The majority of MPs, including Conservative MPs, maybe not the majority of Conservative MPs, but if you take them with Labour, you've got a clear majority for Remain. And yet, Conservative MPs have been remarkably willing to follow the government's position, maybe because the majority is so small, but in the absence of a Labour opposition, you'd think there might be more wiggle room. So how do you have any hope that there is still some resistance to come from that front? I have huge admiration for Ken Clark. The only person who voted against, the, the only Tory MP who voted against the bill, I think. Exactly. And the thing about Ken, of course, is that he's not interested in winning the approval of the Prime Minister. He is interested in doing what he believes in. He said in a memorable phrase that you know, he was not prepared to change his mind on the strength of one opinion poll, which is how he described the referendum. But there's just him. <laughs> there is just him. Now, I a few more will join him. I wouldn't say I'm optimistic about that. And I think that Mrs May has made her position extremely clear in sacking Michael Heseltine from a voluntary post because he voted against the government. I think she was sending a very strong message to Conservatives, you know, do what I say or you will pay the price. And I don't think many of them will take that risk. This is Talking Politics. My name is David Runciman. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It has been, and you've been on the receiving end of some of this, it has been an amazingly vitriolic period in British politics. Horrible. Um, by our standards, certainly. Um, I don't think we've seen anything like it. And you, as a prominent Remainer, who after the vote, though, as you say, you accept some of the formal requirements, you have put the argument that Remain still needs to be taken seriously as an option. And you've had a lot of abuse. Does it tell us something about this issue? Or does it tell us something about the state of contemporary politics? Or is it a bit of both? I think it's more about the state of politics rather than this particular issue. I think this issue has become totemic because it was something on which people could hang their various discontents. And there is an awful lot of discontent around. I think that there has been a latent anger which UKIP, has to take some responsibility for letting loose. You referred to the abuse I'd had. It was stunning. And you weren't expecting it? Well, that's not quite true, because when I was campaigning in Kent, I was taken aback by the hostility, which was very different to when you're canvassing in a normal election. Mm. I've, I've canvassed in elections for years, and generally been really cheered by the response that one gets. You know, people might say they wouldn't vote for your party in a million years, but they'd be quite pleasant and polite about it. 
This was totally different. And this was real anger and hostility. This was on a different scale. And what was the thrust of the anger when it was face to face when you were canvassing? Was it how dare you come and tell us what to think? Or is it that you represented something that they felt was the enemy? They didn't know where I came from, apart from being a Remainer. So all they were objecting to was anyone having the audacity to say something good about Europe and try and persuade them that that was where they should go. And I'm afraid that it was not about sovereignty. People didn't talk about sovereignty. What they talked about was immigration. And the abuse that Remainers have had, which is, if anything, even worse, would you say? I mean, it's got worse. Oh, since. yeah. What, what do you put that down to? I mean, clearly a lot of it is on social media and comes through social media. But given that Brexit won, <laughs> why are the people who voted for Brexit still so angry? Well, somebody came out with a wonderful phrase. He said that uh, you know, we were used to seeing poor losers, but in this particular situation, we seem to have poor winners. And Donald Trump is another example yeah, of that. Absolutely. And, and I think it is this, this latent anger that has just been allowed to boil over without any inhibitions. And people actually bother to put stamps on some of this stuff. Of course, a lot of it's anonymous. Some of them go to elaborate lengths of cutting out words and sticking them on bits of paper. It's very strange, but it in every way looks like the outpourings of anger. Anger that they're not getting what they want as quickly as they want it. Anger that anybody's trying to stop them or even make the case for something they disagree with. Just general frustration. Do you think anything will make that go away? I mean, I know what you think about Brexit and, and the risks associated with it, but even say we get a good Brexit, presumably it's not going to satisfy the frustrations and anger of the people who want an urgent change. I think that's right. And my concern would be that if, as I suspect, the end result of Brexit, if we do actually leave the EU will be that people see a fall in their standard of living. The anger could well intensify, and that is not something one particularly wants to contemplate, but it is deep-seated when you think that Gina Miller, who brought the court case, had death threats and continues to get a torrent of abuse. I don't see that anger subsiding any time soon. And then what happens? Well, one hopes that that would simply remain a political arena decision and they wouldn't take to the streets but I think that there is a genuine fear that if for instance Parliament had decided to delay triggering Article 50 then I think that you could well have seen riots. So how do you stand in relation to those fears given on the one hand that's what you would like to achieve the delay and on the other hand it risks ratcheting up some of the real tensions in our politics at the moment, which probably are, certainly in my adult lifetime, unprecedented. Does it give you real anxiety? Oh, yes, it does. But I think that, to some extent, the anger is understandable. And I think that we need to move quite quickly to begin to ameliorate it. I do think that wages and salaries have not moved as they should have done, and that the gap between top and bottom has been allowed to intensify. I think we need to deal with the housing crisis, which we've talked about forever, and are only now really trying to get to grips with. And there's a lot more we could do there. So I think whoever's in power has to look as if they are doing something to help deal with the discontent. But I have a horrible fear that the discontent goes rather deeper than that, and points towards real divisions in society that may be very hard to to heal and you're seeing them elsewhere it's not just here of course it's exactly what's happened in trump land maybe going to happen in the netherlands maybe going to happen in it may. it's going to take us some time to find out what really happens in the netherlands of course know, such as the joy of their electoral system so i want to ask you one last question brexit it had this odd effect once the dust had settled that it was a kind of snapshot of a country that some of us hadn't quite appreciated that we lived in because it was divided in ways that certainly didn't fit party divisions, which we're sort of maybe overly preoccupied with. 
But which do you think is the fundamental one there? These divisions that have been revealed, is it the generation gap? Is it the education gap? Is it town versus, not country, but sort of non-metropolitan? What's the big one? I've been thinking about this quite a lot. And I think that the, the root cause of all this, and it's not a novel view to come to, is that there is seen to be a global elite, which includes politicians, business people, which is completely out of touch with the rest of the country. And this has been building for a while. But the electorate as a whole just believe they're not being listened to and that they are not getting a fair crack of the whip. And the elite, whether in London or here in Cambridge, live a very different life, have very different views and simply don't understand or listen to what the country as a whole wants. That's a dangerous position to be in, but I can actually see their point of view. I should say I can also see their point of view from inside this Cambridge bubble. It's stark, actually, in some respect. It is stark. And of course, education feeds into that. It was a stronger indicator than income or age. Yeah. But you did use the phrase global elite. Yeah. Because there are always elites, obviously. And certainly the Trump rhetoric, much more even than in the Brexit case, is anti what they call globalism in America. And Hillary Clinton was painted as a globalist. That's a term of abuse. And Theresa May touched on that in her conference speech when she talked about citizens of nowhere. So how much of it is because the elite is perceived to be a kind of international set of people who are just removed from grounded, geographically based experience? I think that's a defining characteristic. I don't think that's actually what causes the anger. It's the mere existence of this elite and that it doesn't pay attention to what ordinary people want and need. Of course, the public are selective in whom they class as members of that elite. My post bag absolutely made it clear that any member of the House of Lords was judged to be a member of that elite, even if we're as mixed as we are, and we are. But David Beckham, with his many millions, isn't criticised at all for being a member of a jet-setting elite. Well, he's had a bit of bad press recently, but yeah, I take No lasting damage. And the same goes for film stars, etc. But politicians certainly aren't trusted. Business people aren't trusted. They are judged to be part of that global elite. So the very last question, and again, I've asked quite a few people this, but you described yourself as an optimist, but you sound quite pessimistic. So if I really put you on the spot thinking not two years ahead but maybe five and leaving aside sort of some of the economic questions but this sort of strain on the social political fabric of this country and again let's leave America out of it in five years time are you genuinely optimistic that our politics will be healthier no no I'm not I, I think you can't take the economics out of it I think the economics will look worse Uh, I think people will be poorer. And even if we stay in the EU, the world economy could be looking tricky. The political uncertainties everywhere are huge. So I think you have to be a real Pollyanna to think that in five years' time it's going to be brighter. So I worry for my children and, and their children. We're back with Helen, Chris and Chris. And now we're going to talk about the subject we just touched on before we spoke to Patience Wheatcroft, which was, in a way, the really big news this week, which is that Nicola Sturgeon, though I think a lot of us anticipated this was coming at some point, the view is she has preempted Theresa May by declaring before Article 50 has been invoked that she will call for a second Scottish independence referendum. In response, Theresa May used what I now think of as her actual catchphrase. So I don't think Brexit means Brexit is Theresa May's catchphrase. Her catchphrase is, and apparently this is what she said in her first cabinet meeting as Prime Minister to her cabinet, she, as it were, banged the table and said, politics is not a game. That's her new catchphrase. And she said it to Nicola Sturgeon yesterday, to which my feeling is, well, no, it is a game, actually. I mean, at least some of it really is about who's playing the game better. Does anyone think that Nicola Sturgeon now has the upper hand in this, that by, as it were, moving first in the game, 
she has got a serious advantage over Theresa May? I think it depends on what she wants to get out of making this particular announcement. She's certainly staking her political reputation and her political career on a second referendum that she may not win. She loses it and she's more or less finished. I think she must be. So it's a very risky thing to do. Is she anticipating that by making this announcement, the British government and the Prime Minister will in some way move on something so that she will get what she wants without having to hold the referendum? That doesn't seem to me very likely. So I think she's committing herself to something, regardless of how the Prime Minister responds, which is risky. But on the other hand, what is her purpose in politics if it's not to focus on achieving Scottish independence at some point and her hand has been you know pushed by the intransigence of the the British government that's probably how she sees it so I think it's very risky I was a bit surprised but I think it does make sense. Helen do you agree that in a sense this isn't actually I mischaracterized it in a sense it's not really a trade-off or negotiation because there's not a lot that either side can trade here I mean Theresa May is pretty clear and already her style as prime minister has made it clear that she doesn't do these kinds of trades it's not as if she's going to back down on, on the European question. So is there is this simply about timing? There's two ways of looking at it. The first is to say that Nicola Sturgeon isn't really interested in a referendum at the moment and that what she's interested in is Theresa May saying no. Is is that for there to be another referendum, then in a timeline that is more suitable to the SNP, I would say, than the one that she's talking about at the moment, then the SNP at least with the support of the Greens, need a majority in the next elections to the Scottish Assembly. That is far from a given in present circumstances. But having an argument in which you can say, look, British government in Westminster, in London, thwarted our desire for a referendum, has some political use for her. I think the other thing, though, we have to bring to bear in thinking about this is, is the internal politics of the SNP. If you look at the things that Alex Salmon was saying, not just since the referendum, but since the 2015 general election, he has been hyper-focused on the need for an early second referendum. She has been much more cautious, and you could read some of the things that he said as being quite critical of her. There's one point I saw an interview that he gave last autumn where he says something like, if I could call a referendum when only 27% of people were in favour of it, why can't she call one when 50% of people are in favour of it? And from Salmon's point of view, I think his calculation is for Scotland to have a future as an independent state, it has to be inside the EU. It's going to be extremely difficult for Scotland to be in the EU once Britain is out of the EU. I still think it's going to be extremely difficult for Scotland to be in the EU in a context in which Britain is leaving the European Union and it may be very difficult for Scotland to be in the EU at all given the Spanish veto but I think that Salmon in particular understands that there's a real problem for the long-term prospects of independence by the way in which the Brexit issue is playing out and this has always been the Scottish nationalist weak point as well as obviously the currency question because they have to persuade other EU member states to let Scotland in and they have to be persuade them to let Scotland in on the terms that Britain now has, which is going to be incredibly difficult for anybody to agree to. Already since yesterday there's been noises coming out of other European governments which have explained just how yeah. difficult it's going to be. So the same version of the question I asked at the top of this podcast, what's really changed? So in this case, what's fundamentally changed since the last referendum? And of course, what's fundamentally changed is that the UK has voted to leave the EU. But as Helen just said, the currency question, I don't know, but if anything, it's got harder, maybe to resolve. Scotland being a member of the EU with England and Wales being out, that's got harder. So the case for independence is going to be harder to make on the one hand, but on the other hand, and there was a good article in the New Statesman yesterday about this, we have to ask who's going to be making the case for the union with real conviction here. I mean, who's actually going to put the other side? And I'm not sure who is. Well, the obvious person is Ruth Davison. I mean, she's the other substantial politician in Scottish politics who's respected both inside the Scottish political system and with the Conservative Party in Westminster. And you can raise a good question about the extent to which the Conservative Party nationally, the Conservative Party in England is committed to the Union. And my sense is that a lot of Conservatives have kind of written it off, that they'd, other things being equal, a lot of English Conservatives would prefer to keep the Union. But it's not going to be something they're going to be willing to make any major compromises for. But Davidson can campaign passionately for the Union because that's what her whole politics are about. 
and in an era where Scottish Labour is very, very weak and the Scottish Lib Dems are weak and don't have any major Scottish national figures, she's the obvious focus for the campaign. But is that enough in the sense that last time it was the coming together of the three main parties to make a series of pledges? The idea that a Scottish Tory is the last hope of the union makes me feel that the union is really in trouble. I think even the coming together of these parties that did the trick last time round, the campaign for keeping the union was not a particularly pro-union campaign. It was a project fear campaign. The consequences of independence will be dramatic. On balance, it's economically very risky. These were the kind of things that won over a much more positive, idealistic, enthusiastic independence campaign. I think this time round, it's going to be even more difficult to see how a positive campaign for the union can be put forward. Circumstances have changed, but the basic question of who believes in the United Kingdom, what is its identity, what is the point of it, why does it hold together, why should it hold together, I don't think there are particularly compelling answers to these questions being put on the table. And I think there is a a slightly bigger set of processes at work here, which is that in many ways, the membership of the European Union functions as a way of holding together multinational states, such as the United Kingdom. I'm not particularly surprised that once the UK has began its process to leave, it starts to fall apart. The UK was, even though it was a truculent member, it was still a member state. And as it's leaving, we're beginning to see the consequences of how to survive as a, as a viable nation state outside of the EU, and it's, and it's difficult. I think there's something in that, but I think it would be wrong to get to the point where we conclude that Brexit is the reason why the UK might break up. I mean, the long-term centrifugal pressures on the United Kingdom way predate the issue of Britain's membership of the European Union. I think what is true is that if you look historically at each kind of significant geopolitical juncture in English and British history, there is a what is the domestic territorial entity question. And after all, you know, the Union, the English-Scottish Union anyway, came about at the beginning of Britain's rise as a um, a world power, or at least a European power, and on its way to being a, a world power in the beginning of the 18th century with the war of um, Spanish succession. So you would expect domestic tumult in a multinational state, particularly given England and Britain's history at such a moment. At the same time, though, is, is Scotland still has to have an answer to the European Union. It's all very well you know, using the European Union as some kind of rhetoric and saying we can be part of a bigger group of countries, bigger group of nations. But the EU is an actual political entity. It makes demands on its members as well as possibly holding multinational states together. And and the Scottish nationalists still do not have any answer to the question of how Scotland is going to fit in a European Union, which may not want it as a member and which the majority of the Scottish electorate are not going to tolerate the kinds of things that the EU will expect Scotland to sign up to as a member. I'm not sure. I think the SNP does have an answer, which is, and if you go back to the first referendum, it was a very peculiar kind of Scottish nationalism that was being put forward. Essentially, the SNP was saying we can exist as an independent nation state under the auspices of the European Union. EU membership became the condition for the flourishing of Scottish national independence and identity. I don't think that view has changed. I don't think there is such resistance within Scotland to being part of the EU in a very classical nationalist versus EU clash. I think it's a a different kind of 21st century nationalism where membership of these kinds of organisations is the condition for small states to exist. The the question is, is though, that even Salmon himself would not commit to joining the Euro. That's the problematic aspect of it. The Scottish nationalists are not committed to being a full member of the European Union. They want to carry on in a currency union with the remainder of the United Kingdom after independence, and that's still the unresolved question. And I think Britain leaving the EU makes that problem worse from the Scottish nationalist point of view, not better. So can I then ask a version of something I said to Patience Wheatcroft about Project Fear, essentially, and the difference possibly between the Scottish referendum and the EU referendum, which is my sense, one of the reasons Project Fear worked was because people had a sense that the day after the vote, things might change. And the currency question could genuinely produce uncertainty. Now, what impact is the fact that Project Fear did not work in the second case going to have on this in that has a bluff been called here? Osborne's punishment budget and all the talk from the experts, and I almost have to say that as though it's got scare marks around it, about the immediate consequences of Britain's exit from the EU, which have turned out simply to be false. 
Will this time around people in Scotland think we were burned once, we're not going to be burned twice and simply actually and maybe incorrectly discount some of the warnings about the immediate consequences of a Scottish independence vote? Is Project Fear, can you only basically run that once and then once its bluff has been called, it's done? I think what we may be seeing is that these economistic arguments just don't have the hold on people that the conventional wisdom has held that they do for a long time. And Im- that's implying even in the first referendum, actually, you don't think that was what swung it. I mean, there's one piece of conventional wisdom that says it was the vow that all the other politicians made on the eve of the referendum that reversed the last minute wobble in public opinion. I'm not quite sure how reliable all the polling is for that, but that's not a story about economics. That's a story about self-government. The unionists didn't win the referendum by promising to flood Scotland with cash. They were making concessions on the extent of devolved powers and things like that. And one of the things we see in the public opinion polling about Brexit is a lot of people who say they will maintain their support for Brexit even if they end up less well off. Now, again, we don't know whether people are telling the truth because the the process hasn't really got going in any serious way. And that's the defence of the Project Fear argument that the pound wobbled after the, the referendum, but actually the process of exit hasn't actually started yet. And when it does, there will be macroeconomic consequences. But my sense is that in Scotland, economic arguments are just going to play out in a less significant way. My hunch about the referendum is that we'll end up with a parallel version of what happened in over-Brexit. That's to say, we're ending up with a hard Brexit, although hardly anyone campaigned on that in the referendum. And it looks as if there was a kind of majority for people saying, well, we want to remain in the single market, even if we're outside the European Union. My hunch with Scotland is that Scotland will end up independent and outside the EU, and the Scottish nationalists will settle for that. And people will remember that almost 40% of Scots voted to leave the EU. It's absolutely not the case that Scottish public opinion is overwhelmingly on the side of remaining. And much of the Remain sentiment, as in England, may not be especially hard. So it does sound like we, we all collectively are of the view that the UK is going to finish quite soon. And I think, no, Chris, you're shaking. I mean, it is different from when we started doing this podcast a couple of years ago. I mean, a lot has changed. I mean, I also incline to the view, I think this is much harder to stop this time around if there is a referendum. I think that it was always a mistake to think of Brexit as a an expression or an affirmation of British sovereignty. It's a test of it. Um, and this test is a pretty arduous test. So the possibility of the coming apart of the United Kingdom is very real. The difficulty with running Project Fear a second time is that we are in a different era now. If we go back to the first Scottish referendum, we were still in the age where dramatic changes seemed kind of unlikely. All that time ago, three years. That's right. So in the space of just a couple of years, really, unexpected things have happened. So I think the rerun in the Scottish case, I think there's a growing sentiment, and I'll try and put it in my best uh, Scottish accent, we bottled it. We bottled it. First time round, we were just a bit too shy of going for it. This time round, things are much more open. Uh, there's much more to play for. The possibilities for these kinds of votes are, you know, there's precedent for it. So we're in a different you know, era. I think that the long term future of the union was probably doomed by what happened in 2014. And I, I thought that um, at the time, in part because I thought that it weakened the events of that referendum campaign were ultimately going to weaken English consent to the Union over the long term, but also because I think it made it clear that the Union had become dependent on contingent political outcomes so that it's satisfactory for the English when the Conservatives are in power, or the majority of the English, I should say, when the Conservatives are in power uh, in Westminster, and it's very unsatisfactory for the Scottish when that's um, the case. And if you have a a Union that depends on election results, then I think it's in in long-term trouble. I'm just less convinced that the immediate events of Brexit will be the trigger because of the particular difficulties that they involve for the practical prospects for Scottish independence. Next week, we're going to slightly change focus and talk about Germany, which we haven't discussed much on this podcast. And we're going to talk a bit about India, which we haven't really discussed at all, where there was a genuinely astonishing election last weekend in Uttar Pradesh may have the most significant consequences of all for politics. 
If you enjoy this podcast, do please rate us on iTunes, review and rate. We would really appreciate it. Do please join us again next week. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics. Little postcard that says, with an image of Caesar on it, it says, People have lost the authentic spirit of the Ides of March. It's not about the stabbing, it's about the coming together, the stabbing groups. <laughs> Open conspiracy. <laughs> Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas... You will be timed. <laughs> <laughs> you will be right <laughs> Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> this was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different. Like you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.